Support for this podcast comes from the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio and its Biggs Institute, expanding the horizons of dementia research and advancing comprehensive care. Learn more at uthealthdementia.org. Most people who win a MacArthur Genius Grant don't credit their success to watching Wheel of Fortune after school with their grandfather. But most MacArthur Genius Grant winners aren't care advocate Ai-jen Poo. I had the great fortune of growing up in an intergenerational household where my grandparents were around a lot and played a huge role in caring for me. And there were several years where my grandfather picked me up from school every single day. And we used to go to Burger King together for my snack on special occasions after school. And we watched Wheel of Fortune together every night. That was his favorite show. And there was so much um, that I learned from being able to spend time with him and around him and being cared for by him. Ai-jen's deep love for her grandfather has driven much of her career fighting for better care for our elders. Ai-jen's family had to make a tough decision. Late in his life, her grandfather lost his vision. And because her family couldn't give him the kind of care that he needed at home, they had to place him in a nursing home. Visiting him there is an image that is forever seared into my consciousness because it was shocking. It was shocking how many people shared a room. It was shocking how little staffing and support was there to support those people. It was shocking the condition of the facility. It was shocking how alone and terrified my grandfather felt, how he couldn't eat the food, and the fact that somebody who had given so much to me and everyone in my family, we couldn't give him a basic quality of life, broke my heart in ways that I didn't know I could feel. (laughs) Um, And it is a huge motivator for why I do what I do. What Ai-jen Poo does is fight for people like her grandfather to get dignified care when they get old. And that starts with investing in care workers. I'm Kitty Isley. This is 24-7, a podcast about caregiving. On this episode, Ai-jen Poo explains how elder care in America got so broken and what we can do to fix it. As I took care of both of my parents as they got older, I witnessed what I consider holy work by care aides, sacred work in hospitals, at rehab centers, and at home. The aides we met did everything, from helping my mom get dressed to lifting my dad from his wheelchair into bed for the night. Things I don't even want to talk about on this podcast, they did for my family with kindness and grace. And that made a really difficult situation less awful. All over the country, care workers are doing intimate, demanding work day in and day out. But they're paid on average $11 an hour. That's less than they'd make at Burger King. It may be less than you pay your babysitter. And that low pay for such hard work is just one reason a lot of them are leaving the profession. Ai-jen Poo co-founded a powerful lobbying group called Caring Across Generations 
to support paid caregivers and the elderly and the people with disabilities that they care for. She wrote about some of this in a book called The Age of Dignity. iGen explains that our attitudes about who does care work and how they should be paid have deep roots in American slavery, racism, and law. You had a, an anecdote or a discussion in your book that really struck me about how we think about what we pay. And that was how the Minimum Wage Act was passed in the 1930s, or minimum wage laws, during the New Deal. And during that time, domestic workers, home care workers in any form, cleaners, cooks, or you know, babysitters, or nannies, or elder care, and farm workers were exempt from being covered by this act. Mm -hmm. Because historically in the South, those jobs had been performed by enslaved people. Mm -hmm. And the Southern delegation would not vote for it if those workers were going to be covered by it. That's right. And it strikes me that we've got these sort of racialized and gendered beliefs about how valuable or necessary that work is and who should be performing it. Mm -hmm. And those beliefs were codified into law. They have been the imprint through which we have treated this workforce um, for, for generations. And the fact that this group of workers that was explicitly excluded because of racism from equal protections under the law is at the forefront of who we want to invest in for our future is actually quite profound. And I just, I say that because I think it's really important to note when we can make progress and how we are making progress, not only toward the care infrastructure we need, but also in equity. I was struck that the average wage is something, I think you said, between 11 and $13 an hour. Mm -hmm. And that means that if we're paying caregivers the essential rate that we pay a Starbucks worker or McDonald's or Chipotle to do the things that we say we value most, which is care for the people we love. Mm -hmm. We don't value people financially for doing that work. Mm -hmm. So in some way, we're not aligning values with what we pay. That's right. We have not made care jobs dignified jobs. And that is absurd because their job is to enable the dignity of the people that we love. And we have failed to deliver on dignified work for them. And yet still, they show up and care no matter what, day in and day out. And I believe that it is one of our country's greatest failures that the people who we're counting on to care for the people that we love can't take care of themselves or their own loved ones doing this work. That is not fair or acceptable at all. And it's not sustainable. And so they end up having to choose to actually go get other work in fast food, retail, driving for Lyft or Uber, because they can make a better living, even though they believe care to be their calling. So if we want to be able to sustain our best caregivers in this work to care for the people that we love, who we know deserve care, good care, quality care, we have to make these jobs better jobs. Otherwise, we will lose everyone. And we're already dealing with that problem right now. Many care workers left the profession during COVID for work that pays better and is safer. Because one-fifth of the Americans killed by COVID 
were people living in long-term care facilities and the staff who care for them, one-fifth. Ai-jen Poo says the pandemic only highlighted how dependent we are on care workers and that our care system clearly doesn't work. We all felt it. I think everybody was dealing with their own version of a care crisis in the pandemic, whether it was because family members were on lockdown in a nursing home or they were thousands of miles away and we weren't able to travel or we had kids home from school. Everybody felt it across class, across every community. And what I think it did is awakened us to the fact that we can be doing our very best everything within our power. And we still need policy because this is a question of of the public good and of public infrastructure. In that, if we think about the definition of infrastructure, it is that which makes everything in the economy and society function. And we traditionally think about it as things like roads and bridges and tunnels. But actually, even before you can get to the bridge and the tunnel, you need care for your family members and the people that you love. In fact, before the pandemic, we might have thought about care as an individual responsibility to be shouldered mostly by the women in our families, right? I think we realized that we need help. We need infrastructure because we can't do this alone. And Ai-jen says we don't often see what a difference a dedicated care worker makes and the commitment they make to the people they care for. Back in the fall, Ai-jen took a group of care workers to the White House to lobby for more investment in caregiving. And one of the women who participated in the meeting shared a story about her new client who had been isolated in covid for over a year and didn't have the assistance that she needed. And because of her limited mobility, was not able to clean, was not able to get groceries, and was not able to leave the house. And what ended up happening when this worker showed up, essentially the home was infested with mice and um, and hadn't been cleaned for a year. And um, the, there was no food. And it was just in such dire straits. And she herself had a phobia of rodents. And she said that she knew that God had put her there for a reason. And that she pushed through her own fears cleaned the place, put food in the refrigerator, signed her client up for food stamps to make sure that she had food going forward, got her a walker so that she could actually leave the house for the first time in a year and feel the sun on her face. And that just the sense of purpose that carried her into this work and and enabled like a basic quality of life for her client. The description of that was so profoundly moving to me. And if you don't know this work and you don't know these workers, you can't, it's just very difficult to imagine the kind of situations that people are in when you're dealing with such basic human needs and there's so little support available. And so it is so easy for people to become so isolated and vulnerable. 
that woman sounds as if she's bringing a great deal of compassion and heart and professionalism to something where she's talking herself past her own insecurities or fears to say, I'm here to do this job on behalf of this woman who needs the help. Mm -hmm. That's a very dedicated person. The dedication, the determination, the empathy and commitment, the kinds of impossible choices and situations that these workers are in, they are paying out of pocket for safer modes of transportation when public transportation feels unsafe. They're making their own PPE when they can't get PPE. They are fighting for access to boxes of gloves. The self-advocacy and the advocacy for clients that is required in order to do this work in an environment where it's just not valued or supported is extraordinary. And the only people who can do it are people with incredible determination and passion for this work. My family was really fortunate in that respect because the same thing happened. My dad's caregiver got her scrubs on and went to Costco early one morning so that she could get extra supplies. I didn't know this was happening, but she said the Costco people would let her in and let her buy double of what was not being handed out. Insure, depends, bed pads. She did more for us than we could have done for her. By by volunteering to show up at Costco at 6.30 and say, I need double that supply of insure and I need double the supply of depends. And the manager would say, I'll put it aside for you for next time. And I think this is a really important point to underscore is the initiative and the creativity that is required to navigate the system, navigate the needs, navigate this environment where caregiving is basically the wild west for all of us. And, you know, it's just like, you're like, you never know what is going to happen from one day to the next. And, and these workers and the family caregivers like you, who they partner with, but we do need to think about this as a collective effort, not just in our own families and in, in our own communities, but as a country, right? We need to invest in our collective ability to care for each other as we age. What should that collective investment be? And what does good care look like? That's when we come back. If you have a caregiving story or experience, tell us about it. Send a short voice memo or email us at 247 at tpr.org. The numbers are 247 at tpr.org. And now a few words about another podcast I'm tuning into a lot. I'm Kitty Isley, and you're listening to 24-7, a podcast about caregiving. Hey there. An Arm and a Leg is a show about why healthcare costs so freaking much and what we can maybe do about it. I'm Dan Weissman. I'm a reporter, and I like a challenge. So my job on this show is to take one of the most enraging, terrifying, depressing parts of American life and bring you a show that's entertaining, empowering, and useful. Where there's money, there'll be scams. I'm not going to lie. We can't win them all. But it turns out we don't have to lose them all either. 
I was so determined. Like, I was not going to go through all of this for nothing. You have to be willing to tell people in authority sometimes that you believe they're wrong. I'm not scared of these fools. That's when the politicians really started getting involved and they passed the law. It's like reading the postscript in a Dickens novel almost. You're like, oh, yeah, hey, look, now we can't chain children to, to factory machines. Like, what? Wait, what? That was legal before? <laughs> You can catch an arm and a leg at armandalegshow.com or wherever you get podcasts. I'm Kitty Isley, back with 24-7, our podcast about caregiving. One thing iGen Poo likes to point out, if you can't care for yourself, you need long-term care because you can't live on your own, the government isn't going to help you unless you have less than $2,000 in the bank. You're on the hook for all of it. One of the reasons why this is so painful for everyone is because we don't have a long-term care program in the United States. We have this myth that we need to bust, which is that Medicare covers long-term care. It really just doesn't. I hate to break it to y'all <laughs> mm -hmm. um, because it's pretty painful, but Medicare does not cover long-term care. And that's one reason that caring for our elders has become so crushing for so many families. And to add to it, we're sticking around a lot longer than we ever did. We essentially added an entire generation onto our lifespan in this country, and we have not adapted our systems, our policies, or frankly, our culture to support a quality of life for that much longer. That's all part of what we need to do to create a society that fits who we are now. We are different. We, are we don't different. have six kids with like, you know, a spare maiden aunt who can look after the elders in her, in her 40s or 50s in the front parlor, as was pretty common in my family. That's right. Right, exactly. And, and really, like the thing that I always try to say is that aging is living, it's actually a good thing that we're living longer, right? It means longer to do all the things, to learn and to love and to connect and to contribute and um, to experience, but only if we have the supports in place to enable that. Back in November, iGen and other advocates were elated when President Biden's Build Back Better plan passed the House. One of its main promises included some of those supports, money to train more caregivers, improve their pay, and allow more Americans to get care in their homes. Because most Americans say they want to age in their own home, stay there as long as they're able. But in some states, there just aren't enough care workers to make that possible. In other states, they don't cover care at home. The bias is toward institutions. So people end up in nursing homes when they might be able to live independently with some help. It's not to say nursing homes aren't vital, just that iGen wants us to realize we can think about old age and care very differently. But as it's clear now, there isn't enough support in Congress for Build Back Better. And that means one of the ways we can fix the system isn't going to happen. But iGen wants us to think about what good care can look like. In her book, The Age of Dignity, she tells the story of her grandmother, who had exceptional care in her own home and community. iGen's grandmother was a nurse in her native Taiwan, and she came to this country to be near family in her elder years. 
and you have these beautiful photos of her with the caregiver, Mrs. Sun, mm-hmm. if I'm saying that right. That's right. Or not. Okay. Yep. That are just heartwarming. I mean, there's no other word. There's just this beautiful charm between them while her caregiver attends to her hair, but it's not as if this person is feeble. It's just she needs a little help. And so the picture you paint for her was had a some keys to it that made that easier. Can you talk a little about why that was successful and how you'd want to replicate that? Yes. She was supported by Mrs. Sun for years. And then after Mrs. Sun, other um, home care workers. And what made that work was my grandmother was able to stay in her apartment and connected to the community that she knew. And she was able to go to church twice a week uh, because her caregivers enabled her. Like they took her there and they brought her home. They made sure that she was able for as long as she was able to go to the grocery store and pick which vegetables she wanted to eat. And that she was able to go to the Chinese hair salon and get her hair permed once a month. And these aspects of life were so much about her ability, in Atul Gawande's words, to be the author of her own story, even as she became more frail and needed more assistance. I believe that that is possible. Good care makes that possible. Caregivers family caregivers, professional care workers. That is what enables people to continue to have agency and dignity, even as they become disabled, more frail, have more limitations. And the hardest part is getting someone to move if that's necessary. And that that ends up you know disrupting, which more power to your grandmother for making a, a happy life. You know, she had to leave her, the country she'd been in to find her family in this country when her time came. And she plucked up and did it with good cheer and became part of her community in a really wonderful way. She really did. And and she really integrated, like she leaned in and learned to love being here in this country in ways. I mean, she and my sister are big NBA fans and they both had their basketball teams and they would watch. And um, she had a lot of pride in being in LA with the Clippers and so I love that. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to know what to say to end this episode because one of the best hopes of fixing our broken system just got shot down in Congress. Just like childcare in this country, caring for our elders at their most frail, it's all thrown back to individual families to figure it out by ourselves. And we're going broke and going under trying to do it. We can do better. But we have to get loud and let our legislators know this matters. In the words of Ai-jen Poo, care can't wait. A sad note to share with you. Our guest, Jacqueline Revere, from a few episodes back, Jacqueline posted this week that her mom, Mama Lynn, died very suddenly. It's a heartbreaking moment for Jacqueline after five and a half years of doing everything to care for her mom. Everyone here at 24-7 extends our deepest condolences. Twenty-four-seven, a podcast about caregiving, is produced by me, Kitty Isley, with Ben Henry. We have editing help from Cindy Carpian and Rekha Murthy. 24-7 is a production of Texas Public Radio.
Stories like those shared in this podcast inspire the work being done at the Biggs Institute of the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. The National Institute on Aging has designated the Biggs Institute to be part of a National Center of Excellence for Dementia Care and Research. We are transforming dementia care for thousands of patients and their families while connecting South Texans of high-risk populations to personalized care, online support, and important clinical trials. We are offering hope for a healthier future for aging. Learn more about the National Institute on Aging designation at uthealthdementia.org.